If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, we're going to enter our final chapter in this verse-by-verse study that we've been in on the book of Galatians. And I believe this is our 21st Sunday of study. Uh, By my uh, very poor math skills, that's roughly five months, right, of study to this point. And so we only have a few more studies here in the book of Galatians. And in case you've missed this study of Galatians, I just want to give you a little overview, a summary of what Paul has been teaching. Um, He's been focused in this letter on clarifying what the gospel of Jesus is and what the gospel of Jesus isn't. And we've said it over and over again that he summarizes, in essence, the gospel as the good news about Jesus to us as sinners, that we are saved by God's grace alone through our faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. As a, as a God who came to this earth as a man, he lived a perfect and sinless life, a life we've all failed to live. And then in his death, he died as a sacrifice for our sins that would restore us to God by providing forgiveness to us. And then, of course, not only did he live and die, but he also rose again and he proved his victory over sin and death, hell and the grave. And also he made the promise that if we will trust in him, he will raise us up with resurrection power to live his life through us. But the gospel does not end with just us being forgiven and restored. That resurrection power is a renewed power in the life of a follower of Jesus day after day after day. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 5, the last couple studies in Galatians. We have victory, daily victory to live in power over sin and to manifest the very life of Jesus Christ through the fruit of the Spirit when we trust and depend on Jesus. We're able to live Like Christ, because the promise of Galatians, the promise of the gospel, is that Christ will literally live in us. That's Galatians 2.20. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what we've seen Paul teaching, clarifying and unpacking those powerful gospel truths for our forgiveness, our restoration, and for our Christian life. And that brings us to our text this morning. Paul is giving us a real-world example of what it actually looks like to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he chooses an example that really is a part of all of our lives, especially if we're going to live in relationship with other people in our family or in our church family. And here's the example he gives. What do you do when you find out that another follower of Jesus has fallen into sin? How do you live in the Spirit when you find out that someone in your life is trapped or caught in a pattern of sin? What does it look like to live by the Spirit and not in the flesh in a situation like that? Whether it's your marriage or in your parenting or in your church family. That's what we'll see this morning in our text in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... 
You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of God for us this morning. I pray God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. So I hope you see what I said earlier there in verse 1. You see Paul lays out this scenario. Someone is caught in sin. And then he immediately gives us a command. So you who are spiritual should restore him. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm, I'm, what Paul's saying here. When he says, you who are spiritual, he's not talking about some elite level of Christians. All right. So there's not some spiritual SWAT team that we call in to handle people who are caught in sin. That's not what he's saying. He's not even referring to specifically pastors or elders. What he's talking about is he's talking about normal Christians who are living in the power of the Holy Spirit like he's been unpacking all throughout chapter 5. He says, if you are spiritual, if you're a person in whom the Holy Spirit lives, which means you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your call is to restore the people around you who are caught in sin. He says, don't ignore them. Don't excuse them. Don't condemn them. Don't gossip about them. He says, restore them. And that very simple concept is what makes up our big idea for this morning. Here's the big idea for today. People filled with Christ's spirit are called to restore people caught in sin. People filled with Christ's spirit, and I pray that's all of you, are called to restore people caught in sin. That's what this passage is really all about. It's about coming alongside individuals in our life, and it will be inevitable that there will be individuals in our life who are caught in a pattern of sin. And we're called to come alongside them, not in condemnation and not in judgment, but in a desire to restore them as they struggle with sin. Look how he describes that in verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says, there's a new law we live in as followers of Jesus. It's the law of Jesus. And what we saw in chapter 5 is that it's a law of love. Look back at verse 13 of, of Galatians 5. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but in love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see what he says here? He says, Jesus sets us free. And what he sets us free from is the power of sin that would keep us from living a life of love. So he's freed us from sin to love. And when you love someone, you serve them. You don't destroy them, he just said. And that's the foundation, guys, for how we come alongside people who are caught in sin. We love them. 
We serve them by doing what's best for them, by doing things that won't continue the destruction in their life. Sin will do destruction enough on its own. We don't need to add to the power of sin's destruction by destroying people around us who are caught in sin. He says, love them, serve them, do what's best for them by bearing their burdens. Love serves by bearing one another's burdens. My favorite documentary is a seven-part documentary series by a, a man named Ken Burns. It's about World War II. And I don't believe your education is complete until you've watched that documentary on World War II. Every episode is filled with personal stories and interviews, but also lots of black and white footage from different battles in the war. And one of the most poignant scenes in the entire series is from something called the Bataan Death March. Now, I don't know if you know about the Bataan Death March, and I got to tell you, if you are over eighth grade and you haven't learned about the Bataan Death March, shame on your history teacher. Send them to me. I will have a discussion with them this week. Your education is not complete. We should know These stories, the Bataan Death March occurred near the beginning of World War II after the U.S. had engaged in the war, and it occurred in the Philippine Islands. The Japanese took over, and they captured nearly 80,000 American and Filipino soldiers. And those soldiers, who were already almost starving to death, were made to march 70 straight miles to a Japanese prison camp. It was grueling, it was torturous, it was actually filled with war crimes. Up to one-third of all those soldiers died on that march. Most of the men could barely stand, let alone walk, but if they stopped walking, they would immediately be shot and killed. So this terrible scene of war, in the middle of it, there is this beautiful picture of men, footage of men coming alongside their brothers in arms, holding them up, themselves almost too weak to walk, but holding their brothers up, using their strength step by step to keep their brother alive and help them overcome their weakness. They bore one another's burdens out of love that served each other. Guys, that is the picture that Paul's painting here. In our war with sin, and we've talked about this in chapter 5, we are in, all of us, a war with sin. You and I are called to bear one another's burdens, to not let one another fall by the wayside and drift away, to not let one another fall in and be trapped in a pit of despair and sin. We are called to use the strength Jesus gives us, not just to enjoy our lives, but to come alongside people who are overcome by sin and see them restored by Jesus Christ, not destroyed by sin. That's the big picture of what Paul is giving us here. But as I studied that passage, there are at least four things that Paul tells us are required as part of that process of restoration. Now, I'll tell you, and we'll look at a couple of other passages. This isn't the only text of Scripture that talks about how to restore people or how to confront people who are caught in sin. And so we're going to focus primarily on what this passage teaches, and I would just encourage you to look at the fullness of the whole counsel of God as you're forming a biblical understanding of restoration. But let me give you four things we see in this text 
that are required to restore those who are caught in sin. Number one, restoration requires recognition. Restoration requires recognition. If we're going to restore people caught in sin, then there are a couple of things that need to be recognized. First, we have to recognize sin as sin. Do you guys realize that? I know that feels self-evident, but there is a recognition of sin that has to happen by both sides or restoration can't occur. You can't, you can't restore people who don't think they're in sin, and you can't restore people from sin who aren't actually in sin. Here's what I mean by that. It means that we need to make sure that somebody is actually in sin if we're going to seek to restore them from sin. Not just practicing the freedom that they have in Jesus and doing a thing that we would prefer not to do. Let me give you an example. I'll give you one. I grew up in a very strict Christian home. A very, very strict Christian home. Lots of people around me said things were sin that I don't believe are actually sin. There were some people who said it was a sin for you to read a different version of the Bible other than the King James. Some people said it's a sin to go to Red Lobster to eat because they served alcohol. I think it's a sin to go to Red Lobster because of how expensive it is, but that's another story entirely. There were some people who literally said it was sin for women to wear slacks instead of dresses. Really, when I was a kid, one of our neighbor kids came up to me and asked if our family was Amish because of all of the rules that we had, all of the things we weren't allowed to do. It was me and the Jehovah's Witness girl that had to step out of the room at school when it was square dancing time because dancing was a sin. You guys know that. And the way I dance is a sin, but that's a whole other story. And when she said, is your family Amish, rather than try to somehow explain all of the rules that we had, I think I just said something like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, forget the uh, car we drive and the electricity run into the house. We're, we're Amish. Let me know if you need any good cabinets. I think I can hook you up with a guy. Anyhow, in that environment, there was lots of confrontation, confrontation over lots of things. People were trying to restore people all the time from places that, now that I look back, weren't actually sin. So it was like a bunch of spiritual Barney Fifes running around, half-cocked, with a bullet in their pocket, ready to shoot the first person who was not sinning, but practicing a preference that is a freedom we have in Christ. And so I know it feels self-evident, but it's really important because of how many of us grew up. There has to be a recognition. Is this sin? Before we can restore someone we see as caught in sin. But that goes as a two-way street as well. The other person has to recognize sin as sin. In verse 1, Paul describes the person that we're seeking to restore as someone, and he uses this great phrase, caught in sin. When he says caught, he doesn't mean that you catch them like you're part of the spiritual FBI constantly investigating the lives of other people. Ha ha, I caught you. That's the pastor's job. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the word caught is a word that's sometimes translated overcome. And what that word overcome is actually referring to is a person who is trying to outrun something but wasn't fast enough. They didn't want to get caught, but they weren't fast enough to run away. It was chasing them. It overcome them. It caught 
them. That's how Paul's describing the person who's ready to be restored. They want to overcome sin. They know it's something they shouldn't be a part of. They are running if they could, but they've been trapped. They've been caught. They see their sin as sin. They want to be helped. Years ago, I was counseling a young couple who were openly living in a sinful pattern of of immorality. As I talked with them about God's design for purity in our relationships, as we went through passage of scripture after passage of scripture, what became clear is that this couple did not believe that sexual immorality was sin. They thought their their life was somehow different than what the Bible was talking about, even though the Bible's very clear about Christ's call for sexual purity in our life. And so they didn't see any need for restoration because they thought they were just fine. They didn't see sin as sin. And listen to me, restoration is not possible when you don't recognize sin as sin. And we're seeing that play out all around the landscape of American Christianity. Entire denominations are refusing to recognize sin as sin. Do you know that? It's all around us. And one of the things we need to be clear about as followers of Jesus Christ is there is no restoration. We are at an impasse. When we don't recognize sin as sin. We don't determine it. We don't define it. The word of God is clear. And we don't make or write the word of God. But we do declare it. We do preach it. We do believe it. We desire to obey it. And when there is no recognition of sin. When we are at an impasse as to what God has clearly said. There is no restoration When there is no recognition that sin is sin. And I just have to tell you, I thank God that this isn't the only passage of scripture that describes how we relate to people who are professing to be believers, but are living in unrepentant sin outside of God's design clearly given in his word. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 verse 16 says this, but if he does not listen after you've gone to him with the truth of the word of God and confronted the reality of sin, he says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here's what Jesus is saying. When someone refuses to recognize their sin, there can be no restoration. Even if they profess to be a believer, they are to be considered, he says here, as unbelievers. Because it's inconsistent to say, Jesus is my Lord, but I won't live the way he said to live. And in the church of Corinth, Paul says a very similar thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's referring to a person who was living in a public, defiant, unrepentant pattern of sin. And because this person wasn't recognizing their sin as sin, he says there's no restoration. As a matter of fact, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat 
with such a one. Now, we can see from chapter 6, he'll talk about the fact that Christ is able to redeem and cleanse and purify us from all of those exact sins. What he's saying is when you live in unrepentant rebellion against God, when you are guilty of that sin by refusing to acknowledge it as sin, by refusing to repent of it as sin, by living in unrepentant pattern of sin, restoration can't take place. That's what he says. It's not until we recognize sin as sin. When someone who realizes that they have broken fellowship with their Lord and his people by their own choice, until that happens, restoration can't take place. And there's a lot more to be said. we got to move on. What about when someone does realize their sin? Well, what about when someone says they're repentant? That's the second thing we need to recognize. We have to recognize that restoration is a process. Restoration is a process. That word restore in our text is a word that was used to describe resetting a broken bone. And if you've ever had a broken bone, you know that broken bones take time to heal. Let me just ask you this. How long does it take a broken bone to heal? Do we have a consensus? I'm not sure. Well, it depends, (laughs) right? It depends on which bone you've broken and how severe that break is. So if you have a hairline fracture in your little toe, and I've had several of those in my lifetime, I would blame them on sports injuries, but it's a genetic fault I have called being clumsy. I have broken those little toes on multiple occasions. It takes a few weeks for those toes to heal. But if you have a shattered leg, you know it'll take... A long, long time. My, my sister-in-law, Leah, was in a severe car accident several years ago. She shattered almost every bone in her, I believe it was her right leg. And restoration took a long, long time. As a matter of fact, restoration took so long that restoration meant she would never in this lifetime return to what her leg was like before the injury. That's how severe the shattering was. And guys, there's a similar truth to the patterns of sin. Every pattern of sin is unique and the process of restoration is a process. And as a result of the unique nature of our relationships and the severity of how our relationships can be broken, restoration looks different as a result of those unique qualifications. For instance, if your child disobeys you by not cleaning their room, they may repent and be restored in the exact same moment, right? You may say, I forgive you. I love you. It's okay. Let's get to your room. I'll even help you with it. But if your spouse shatters your trust with infidelity, their relationship may take significantly longer. And if your spouse continues to engage in a pattern of serial infidelity, breaking that same relationship over and over and over, guess what? The process of restoration will reflect it. It will lengthen an amount of time that restoration will require. Paul actually gives us insight into that exact paradigm in 2 Corinthians. The individual that he was talking about, don't associate with this individual in 1 Corinthians 5, has actually repented of their sin. And a significant amount of time has now taken place from when he wrote 1 Corinthians to when he's writing 2 
Corinthians. And because that person had repented of their sin, there was a, a process that had been taking place to see if their repentance was actually sincere. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul tells them, hey, this individual is displaying the fruit of repentance. It's proving to be sincere so they're ready to be restored. 2 Corinthians 2.8, Paul says this, So I beg you then to reaffirm your love for him. Restoration could finally take place because the person who was caught in sin acknowledged finally their sin was sin and engaged in biblical repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10, Paul says, Godly grief produces a repentance That leads to salvation without regret, whereas there's another kind of grief. Worldly grief produces death. I I don't have time to go down this road, but there is a huge difference, friends, between remorse and repentance. People may have remorse over the consequence of their sin without being repentant of the sin they committed that required that consequence. So here's what Paul does. He encourages the Corinthians to call that brother to repentance, acknowledge his sin, and engage in a process to be restored. And so without going any further down those roads, restoration requires recognition that sin is sin and that restoration is a process. Number two, restoration requires gentleness. Look at verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, listen, gentleness is not the same as weakness. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. Gentleness is only required when there's a significant amount of strength that needs to be controlled. It's why when we go to visit the mountains in North Carolina, I don't tell my kids, hey kids, be gentle with the mountain. You could break it. No, they're not in any danger of breaking the mountain so they don't have to be gentle. I say, go run on the mountain and pour your energy out and be tired by the time bed comes. That's what I say to the kids. Gentleness requires that you have a kind of strength that could actually do damage if it weren't controlled. Have you ever, have you ever had to hold your child while they were getting a shot that they didn't want to get? Did you ever have that? Yeah, it's amazing the superhuman strength a two-year-old can summons on demand. I don't know if you guys know this. I was significantly stronger, well, a little bit stronger than my children were when they were two years old. I could easily overpower them. So sitting in those doctor's offices holding them while they needed to get their shots, I could have overpowered them and their resistance, but I could also have easily injured them by overpowering them. So what did I do? I had to exercise strength with gentleness. That's the dynamic. That's the word Paul's describing here. He says, restoring your brother or sister in Christ, it's going to require amazing amounts of strength. And it really will, friend. You're going to have to say some really hard things to people you love. And it takes a kind of strength to say those types of really hard things. You might have to establish healthy boundaries for the other person's good. And boundaries require strength. But the goal of those types of words and boundaries is not destruction. It's restoration. So gentleness is essential. Guys, it's particularly important when you confront sin, 
When you see someone in an unrepentant pattern of sin, you are called to confront that as a brother or sister in Christ when they don't acknowledge their own sin. And you know, there's a lot of different ways to confront sin. Did you know that? You can be harsh. You can be critical. You could, you could print up a protest sign that says, turn or burn, baby. You could do that, right? There's some weirdos doing that calling it a call to restoration. You could lay shame or a guilt trip on someone. You could get angry. You can lash out at them in sinful anger. That's called retaliation, not restoration. When you want to see someone restored, though, you don't confront people in sin that way. You come with a spirit of gentleness, with tenderness in your heart, with a desire for their restoration, even when you have to be firm. And because you need gentleness, do you know what that means? It means you need the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You only have the strength to be gentle with others in sin when Jesus himself is living in you. If you're going to restore someone caught in sin, then you need to realize You're not the only, they're not the only person who needs Jesus. You need him too. That actually brings me to the third requirement for restoration. Restoration requires humility. Humility. Look at the end of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. See what he's doing here? Paul says, listen, there's there's a real danger involved when you're helping individuals who are dealing with their sin. And the danger is this. You can be just as easily tempted into sin as they are. And when I I used to read that passage, I used to think that what Paul was saying is that if you come alongside someone who's trapped in sin, you got to watch out because they may drag you into their own sin, right? Kind of like helping someone out of a pool. You reach down and it's just as likely they're dragging you into the pool as you're dragging them out. I speak from experience, right? That's not what I think Paul is saying here. Even though I think that that is... A true scenario in some regards. If you're going to come alongside someone, I think there's a dynamic he's referring to here that's not just that they'll drag you into their sin. I think he's saying there are countless temptations that come when you stand alongside someone struggling in sin. And the number one temptation is a thing called pride. You know, it's easy to become proud when you don't struggle with the sin that you see in the life of someone next to you? I think that's why Paul writes what he says in verse 3. He says, if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Guys, it is so easy to become self-deceived when you're helping somebody else who's struggling in sin because you can start to think, man, I'm really something. They can't stop that sin, and I don't even start that kind of sin. Man, I'm really something. And Paul says, when you think that way about yourself, you're not something... You are nothing. You are self-deceived. The reality is this, friends. We are all sinners in need of grace. Did you know that? All of us, every single one of us. We can begin to think we are really something as though, man, we are not sinning ourselves. So I'm above sin myself. Guys, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to work in us as much as they need Jesus to work in them. And I want to just tell you this. You need to know, and I need to be reminded, that having a harsh, critical, judgmental spirit is just as much sin as drunkenness and homosexuality. You know that? 
Having a proud, self-righteous spirit is just as much sin as materialism or murder or gossip or greed. Having an arrogant, condescending spirit is just as much sin as gluttony or idolatry. Can I give you a prayer you might want to add to your prayer life? When you're in a relationship with someone struggling in obvious sin, would you go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you too. Jesus, I need you. Will you show me before I point out the speck in their eye, would you graciously show me the log in my own? Jesus, I need you too. Let me ask you, how would it change the way you relate to your spouse when they sin against you? If you humbly believed that in that moment you need Jesus just as much as they do, or that you'll be overcome by sin when you respond to theirs? How would it change the way you approach your children when they sin against you? If you really believed humbly that you need Jesus just as much as your child in their sin, And that you'll be overcome by sin and temptation in the way you respond to them if Christ doesn't give you grace. How would it look at church? How would you look at church? If you saw someone who had a glaring weakness, your brother or sister or your pastors, and you believed that you were just as susceptible to sin as they are, And that if it isn't for Jesus, you'll be overcome by sin in your response. Listen, friend, what Paul is saying is that you and I both together as individuals, we will one day give an account for our own sinful attitudes and actions. And that's why he ends this section in verse 5 with, for each will have to bear his own load. Guys, he's not contradicting himself We are called to bear one another's burdens as we walk through this life. But we should never forget that all of us will one day be responsible for our own sin. That's a humbling thought. Jesus sees your heart. He sees my heart. He sees my judgmental, condescending, arrogant, self-righteous, religious thoughts and attitudes. And that is sin in me. My only hope, your only hope of standing in the day of judgment is by bowing in humility now before Jesus and saying, Jesus, I desperately need your mercy and grace. Keep me from sin. Lead me not into temptation. Give me victory in all the ways I'm tempted, both to sin and to sin in my response to the sin of others. Restoration requires humility. And then quickly, let's just finish with the fourth thing. Restoration requires confidence. Confidence. Now listen, that might sound like a contradiction when I just said humility, but I want to show you what I mean. Look at verse four. I think there's a really awesome truth that's right here in verse four for us. He says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now stop right there. I don't think that Paul is saying that we should take pride in ourselves, like we should become proud of ourselves. That's not consistent with anything he said in this letter to the Galatians. Even more, look down at verse 14, just a couple verses down. He says, but far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, now he describes a work that Jesus has done, 
done in him by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, listen, the only boast that followers of Jesus have is Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus only Jesus. What he has done for us at the cross and how his work at the cross has overcome our sin and enabled us to die to the sinful patterns of this world. So Paul is not saying that we should look at how good we are And take pride in ourselves that way. Here's what I take him to say. When we compare ourselves to our neighbor who's struggling in sin, we might be tempted to boast in how much better we are than they are. You ever felt that temptation? I don't do that. I don't do that. And that becomes a boast in light of my neighbor. But what he says is this, there's no reason to boast in light of your neighbor because we just talked about that. You need Jesus just as much as they do. But when you look to your own life, you have a unique front row seat, an opportunity to see what Jesus has done in your life. That's what I take him to be talking about when he says to examine or test your own work. It's Christ who lives in us, he says, and our work is enabled only by his grace and the power of his spirit. And when I get to see what Jesus has done already in me, I'm not who I will one day be, but praise God, I'm not who I once was. I get to see Jesus working in me, and then I now have reason to boast, not because of me, but in my life. I get to say, friend, Jesus has been at work in me. And then you get confidence in Jesus and not yourself. And guys, I got to tell you, there is no better thing you bring to the table in confronting the sin of other people than a supreme confidence in the power of Jesus. You can say, brother, listen, I know how it feels to struggle in sin. Without Jesus, I am a mess. We need Jesus. But brother, we don't just need Jesus. We have Jesus He will save us. He will raise us up. He will give you power. I can tell you, he's already freed me from things I never would have been freed of if it hadn't been for his grace and his power. That's called boasting in Jesus. And friend, ultimately, that's the only way we can restore a fallen brother by pointing them over and over and over to Jesus and boasting in his power, having confidence that our Christ is mighty to save. Imagine with me, friend, what would it look like if this room of people were so confident in Christ's power to overcome sin that we didn't shy away from conversations about sin? Imagine if we were so confident that Jesus will raise up those who trust in him, that we actually looked for opportunities to boast about the saving power of Christ by initiating conversations with others who are caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness and humility and the law of love with an offer to say, you're not alone and I will walk beside you. Imagine what church would be like if that's the way we lived. Well, listen, that's exactly who we are called to be to be ministers of reconciliation and restoration. So let me just ask you this. Who in your life do you know is trapped in sin? Would you pray for the spirit of Jesus to well up in your heart with love and humility and gentleness? 
Would you pray that God would give you opportunity to step toward their life with hope and confidence that Christ, who is saving you, will save them in every way they need to be saved? What about your one? Who's your one? That person who's far from God but close to you. Would you pray for an opportunity to boast to them about the work of Jesus and how great he is? Let me tell you something, friend. Jesus is mighty to save. And there are some of you who are the ones on the other side of this conversation. You're the one trapped in sin. You come into this place and your heart is heavy with guilt and shame and grief because you can't outrun your sin Hear this man here boast. Jesus is more than enough for you. He is mighty to save and will do what you can't do for yourself. Will you call on Jesus today? He will save you from your sin. Would you bow your heads in prayer? And if you're that person who says, I have been trapped in my own sin and I can't save myself, right now, would you call on Jesus? Just acknowledge your own sin and inability to change and save yourself and confess in faith that you believe Jesus lived the life you have not lived, a perfect life, obedient to God on your behalf. Acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross as a payment, as a a sacrifice for your sins so that you could be forgiven and restored to God. And by faith, acknowledge that Jesus was raised from the dead and lives today with the power to raise you up. Call on Jesus just right now where you are. Pray, Father, save me. I confess my sin and my need for Jesus and I believe Jesus died in my place and rose again. You raise me up, Lord. Call on Jesus. Claim the promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you are walking alongside someone you love or is close to you, but is trapped in sin. Would you pray for the Holy Spirit to stir you to know how to pray and relate to that person today? Specifically ask him to give you a Holy Spirit discernment and recognition. Pray for gentleness. Pray for humility. Pray for confidence that Jesus can do what's humanly impossible in restoration. Father, I I don't know of a more practical truth than the one we've talked about because of how our lives are so impacted by this dynamic. Father, all of our relationships that are struggling are struggling because of sin. All of the friction in our relationship between parents and children and children and their parents is because of sin. All of the struggles of division and dissension and gossip in a community of believers, all of that exists because of sin. 
And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace and Holy Spirit power to live as you've called us to live in a ministry of restoration. Discernment, recognizing sin is sin and restoration. It's a process to engage with gentleness and humility and confidence. Be glorified in us as the restoration power of Jesus is on display in us. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name.